Hello, friends of futureprimitive.org. I am uh, very, very glad to be on the phone today with author Derek Jensen. Derek Jensen is the author of Thought to Exist in the Wild, Songs of the Dead, Endgame, Dreams, and other books. In 2008, he was named one of Atne Reader's 50 Visionaries Who Are Changing Your World. So I'm purposely doing a very, very short introduction because um, I treasure this time that we have with Derek Jensen. I want to ask you, Derek, if you had to qualify who you are and what you do, what would you say? Um, I guess I would say I'm a, a writer and longtime grassroots activist. Yeah, I guess I guess that's that's how that would be the very very short version. Um, okay. Okay. Gr- grassroots activist. And uh, so does the writing of books fuel the work of the grassroots activist, or is it the other way around? Um, I, I think that they work together. And I just actually, a couple of minutes ago, put the finishing touches on the introduction for uh, a Derek Jensen reader that's coming out next spring. And in this reader... I was talking about one of the things I mentioned is probably one of my most most quoted lines that I wrote 14 years ago, which is every morning when I wake up, I ask myself whether I should write or blow up a dam. And what I was getting at with that line is that was that there is it's very important that we be able to that we articulate the things that we need to articulate, but that words by themselves are not actions. Words are symbolic, and that can have very important ramifications. It can help change people's lives. It can help change history. But that doesn't alter the fact that words by themselves don't topple dictators, and words by themselves don't stop global warming, and words by themselves don't save salmon. Salmon aren't being killed by a lack of words. They're being killed by dams, and among other things. And... So for me, it's very important to. And so, so part of the part of the essay is about that, and part of the essay is about how too many people have told us too often that words are that writers are not supposed to be polemical. Writers are not supposed to have a message. If you have a message, you know, use Western Union. They say, <laughs> and that's not true. Words can be weapons to be used in the service of our community. That's very very true. But another part that's also true is that words by themselves, words are not sufficient as, words can't stand alone as weapons. And so for me, the writing is one form of activism that has to be combined with other forms of activism to help create social change. Okay, so I uh, want to say to you that um, I think it was eight years ago, I read a language older than words, and I wrote to you that uh, your book had the same effect on me as when 
probably 18 years ago, I read Alice Miller's books. And when I read Alice Miller's books, I felt freer than I'd ever felt before. And uh, when I read Language Older Than Words, that's what I felt as well. I felt somebody knows. So I'm coming to my question, which is, I grew up and ran away from a civilization, quote-unquote, of perpetrators, meaning with the people who had the most money in the world. And it is clear to me that these people will never change and never give up. Can you speak to that? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that question goes to the heart of, of all of our struggles in many ways, and I completely agree with you that they, they won't change. And there are a bunch of reasons they won't change. One, a writer who really helped... Well, first off, thank you for saying that about putting me in the same category as Alice Miller. I'm deeply honored that yeah. that makes me happy. Yeah. And there have been some writers who have done that for me in various ways. And so far as, as, as I'm not changing, there's a couple ways I want to approach this. One of them is that we all know that... And we, we, we've heard the cliche that if someone is addicted to something oftentimes they don't change. And to addict comes from the root, by the way, the root to enslave. So it, it came from the notion of a judge ordering, dictating something. Mm. And so if someone is addicted to, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about some drug or whether we're talking about television or whether we're talking about sex or whether we're talking about technology or whether we're talking about power, if someone is addicted to it, they... They, they have become enslaved to it. I used to teach at a, at a, at a prison, a uh, supermax prison, and some of my students would say that at first the drugs served them and later on they served the drugs. Mm -hmm. And the, the point is that the cliche is that most addicts don't change until they hit bottom. It's, it's a cliche, but it's true in many cases. Mm -hmm. But... One of the problems is, is if someone is addicted to power, they're not the one who hits bottom. Everybody else hits bottom because they're abusing everybody else. Someone who is addicted to power and abuse will be harming everyone else, but they're actually, as long as they don't care about relationship, which members of this culture don't, and abusers by definition don't, then they're actually gaining tangible benefits. It's the same with capitalism, that the capitalists are gaining tangible benefits at the expense of the rest of the world, as 200 species go extinct today and 200 species go extinct tomorrow, and the world is being dismantled. But, but meanwhile, um, the global elite are able to maintain their addiction to, to this way of life. And that's one reason. Um, and then if we go in an entirely different direction, you know, there's, there's, there's a part in, in language older than words that I've gotten lots and lots of fan letters over the years about it, but there's, there's one part that only one person's ever really commented on. It's one of the most important sections of the book, and that was there's one section where I talk about this horrible vivisector who designed experiments to make monkeys permanently insane and to make them permanently sociopathological. And he succeeded. If you, if you raise them with enough alienation and enough torment, they are permanently sociopathological. They can never be reached and they themselves end up um, destroying any others that they come in contact with. And really, that's what we see with the dominant culture. 
um, and then to go a different direction with this, I'm going to go two more directions here. Mm-hmm. One of them is, and you can go wherever you want with any of this or, or somewhere else, um, one of them is that the reason I wrote my book Endgame is because for years I've been asking people if they believe that this culture will undergo a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of living because all of our social change strategies are really based on on that unstated premise. And what I found is that nobody actually believed this. Like one or two people out of every thousand would say, yes, they believe that this culture will undergo a voluntary transformation. Everybody else would laugh. It's just crazy. Yeah. It's insane. And so the question becomes, if you don't believe the culture is going to undergo a voluntary transformation to a sustainable way of living, and you care about life on this planet, what does that mean for your strategy and for your tactics? <laughs> and the answer is, for the most part, we don't know because we don't talk about it. And that's actually why my friends Eric McVeigh and Lee Keith and I wrote Deep Green Resistance, because it is completely based on the notion that there won't be a voluntary transformation and we want to stop this culture from killing the planet. And the real point on that is that if, if you don't believe there's going to be a voluntary transformation and you want to stop perpetrators of abuse, I mean, A, you can do what you did, which is extremely important, which is to leave. That's so crucial. But what do you do when it's on the planet? Mm. And, you know, it's a finite planet, and they're everywhere. We can't leave anymore. This is what indigenous people did for a long time. It's like, well, they've invaded, and we fought them, and they keep overwhelming us, so let's just leave. Let's move, let's move west. Let's go somewhere else. Mm. But unfortunately, A, somebody else is already there, and B, this culture keeps expanding, and it will keep expanding. And so... At some point, we simply have to stop them. That's the only way you stop perpetrators of abuse is you stop them. And you stop them by using whatever means are necessary. But I want to say one more thing about this, which has to do with this, with why, with one of the reasons the, the abusers won't change, another reason that perpetrators of abuse won't change. Mm-hmm. And this has to do, the problem is that the abuse is in their very identity and not merely in an action they do. And what I mean by that is, Within this, within this patriarchy, um, the way you become masculine, the way you become superior, is by defining others as inferior and therefore violable. And what I mean, I mean, examples of this are, you know, whites declaring that blacks are inferior and therefore violable, enslavable, or men declaring that women or children are inferior and therefore violable, as in rapeable or mm-hmm. other forms of violation. And... Um, declaring indigenous people are are inferior and therefore viable. Non-humans are inferior and therefore viable. I mean, this, this entire culture is based, its epistemology even, is based on violation of others. There's a great line by Richard Dawkins, the scientific philosopher. Mm-hmm. He says that science bases its claims to truth on its spectacular ability to make matter and energy jump through hoops on command and to predict what will happen and when. Science bases its spectacular science bases claims the truth on its spectacular ability to make matter and energy jump through hoops on command. What he has done there is conflate domination with truth. He's saying that's how you know something is true is how by how well you can dominate it, how well you can violate it. Wow. And that's 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 how deeply this imperative to dominate in this culture is it gets into our you can't get deeper than your epistemology, really, which is how you know something is true. And the point here is that, so if you, to be a man in this culture, and this is not across all human cultures, to be a man in this culture is to define others as, invi- as and I'm not saying that this is because you have a penis. What I'm saying is, is that 
that it, within this cultural construct, that is how you get defined as a man, is by defining others as inferior and then therefore violating them. There's a couple big problems with this. The first is, like the great psychiatrist R.D. Lang wrote, um, how do you plug a void, plugging a void? And what this means, what I mean by this here, is that they're attempting to plug an emptiness inside through violating others. They're attempting to validate themselves through violating others. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is not going to really validate you. And so you need to keep violating again and again and again because you're plugging your void with a void. You're, you're, you're using a means that's not going to work to try to fill an emptiness. And there's another problem that means that it's, that another reason it's going to be insatiable is because there is always someone new to violate, which means that you are never as omnipotent as, I mean, the whole patriarchal monotheistic God is based on this omnipotence, this all-knowing and all the ability to control everything. And that, that's the goal in patriarchy. And there is always someone new who is here who has not yet been violated, which means you are always still not as potent as you think you are, and so you have to violate them, which is why the scientists have to send you know, probes into the deepest folds of the ocean. That's why they've got to bomb the moon. That's why they have to, to, to violate yeah. genetic integrity. That's yeah. why they have to do all this. Is this imperative to violate. And that, the point here, really, yes, there's all that. And then in addition, the point is that that is their identity. It's not simply an action. You know, it's like, I have a car. I have, I have a truck, a pickup. And, you know, I can drive the pickup. That's fine. But I don't identify with the pickup. And if the pickup, and the pickup got stolen several years ago, it's like, well, lost my pickup, you know? It's a drag, but it didn't change my identity. But if it's what your very identity, you asked, us, you asked originally, you know, how would I self-identify? You didn't use those words, but, you know, if I couldn't write anymore, that would severely affect my identity because that's who I am. And if I couldn't do activism, that's who I am. And... There's a difference between simple actions, and if you identify, it's much harder to break the identity. Um, so that's another reason I don't believe that that abusers are um, are reachable for the most part, is because their their very identity is based on the abuse. With CEO, I I want to make the point again on the Alice Miller when I knew that somebody knew the extent of abuse. Instead of being depressed, I felt free. And that's how I feel about your work. I try to say to people, the, uh, the depths of the perversity, uh, maybe they haven't seen a redwood fall or uh, a child being raped. The depth of the perversity is enormous. It's, it's beyond belief. And to know that you know that is just absolutely so freeing. It's, it's way beyond despair. It frees me from despair. Do you meet a lot of people who feel that way about your work? Well, that's, that's probably the single most common compliment that people give me about my work is, is that it was freeing to, to, to find that somebody else understood these thoughts that they had had themselves, but they'd not, but they thought they were alone in having these thoughts, to have them validated from the outside. And, you know, something similar happened to me. I mentioned this earlier, and, and there are a few places for this. One of them was when I read Neil Everenden's The Natural Alien, which was the first book I read, which did not take the utilitarian worldview as a given, but instead questioned it. 
and a huge, I was 27 or so, and this, a huge weight went off my shoulders. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not crazy. The culture's crazy. Mm-hmm. Another one that did that to me about the same time, maybe a year or two before or after, I don't remember which, was I read a friend of mine. I still remember where I was sitting. That means I can figure out it was about the same year then. I still remember where I was sitting when a friend was reading me on the phone some excerpts from Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery. And there was a list of symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And my friend and I were both just crying as we were reading someone, as, as we were learning that there was a, that what we had experienced and what, what was happening in our daily lives, that there was a description of it and that it wasn't just random things happening to us, but instead it was predictable responses to the trauma that we had each endured. And to know that there was, um, I mean, it's like Judith Herman says that, that atrocities are events that go beyond words, and that's the meaning of the word unspeakable. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to be able to speak about those things. That, I think, is, is you know, there's, there's this, this notion, um, like in the Bible and elsewhere, that if somebody names something, they give them power over it. And so there's this really crazy notion, both within the patriarchy and then also in a lot of sort of various books, that like, if I name this tree, that gives me power. And that never made any sense to me. You know, it's like, you know, I can name this tree. I'm sitting outside myself and looking <laughs> at trees, and, you know, here's a tree. And if I want to call the tree Susan, I mean, big deal. I mean, what, what does that do? It doesn't, doesn't affect the tree, really. But there's a way in which it does work, and that's one of the effects of trauma, like we've both been saying, is that, it, it, it happens at a level beyond words, and being able to name those words, well, here's, here's another way to say this, is mm-hmm. that, you know, I've written a lot about abuse in many of my books, and that I was abused when I was a child, and, you know, for many, many years, I had, I would have terrible nightmares, and I would wake up terrified many, many times a night, and horrible insomnia, and many, many other symptoms, and uh, what, what, I, what I later learned were symptoms of PTSD at the time I just thought I was strange mm-hmm. and then having worked through the the trauma and and metabolized it and been able to tell the trauma story as in writing a language or the words which I didn't write for therapeutic reasons but it ended up it was very therapeutic to do so having told the story no longer did I did I have many of those symptoms and I realized that it was because I had told the story that all those years, the trauma, the, the, the symptoms were attempts by my body to tell the story of what had happened. And when I was able to put that story into words and to make meaning of it and to use the suffering as a, as a gift then to the larger community, that um, there was no reason for me to have those night terrors anymore. <laughs> there was no reason for me to have um, the nightmares. And since I've told the story, and, you know, and, and time has passed, yeah, yeah. you know, I probably have a nightmare once every couple, three years now. I still have some of the problems, but, but many of them resolved. And I, I am very convinced that they resolved because I was able to name them and be able, been able to make, make meaning of them. And that's a process that we all, that, that we, the survivors, have to go through. Um, it doesn't affect the perpetrators at all because, you know, my father, insofar as he even looked at my work at all, he just called it all 
fiction, you know, which is what we'd expect. But <laughs> yeah. I wasn't writing it for him. So we can transpose this on the political, social justice level. I was thinking that um, those people who are poor and oppressed suffer from PTSD. And uh, uh, we need to tell our stories. And so what, what way would you advise for telling these stories and therefore making them real, these stories of oppression and, uh, and rape of the earth? Well, um, I think there's... I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that is something that a doctor friend of mine often says, which is the first step toward cure is proper diagnosis. And so I think that we do need to start telling the truth about the circumstances we face and about the oppression we face. I think, I think often of, I went once to, I was, I was invited once to do a talk at Bioneers, and I was also invited once to do a talk at a Green Festival. And both of those places, you know, they're supposed to be really inspiring and everything, but they both made me feel really depressed and despairing in a negative sense and mm -hmm. disempowered. And I realized later that the reason it did is because the um, is because when I was there, I was the only person that I saw talking about either power or sociopathology. Mm -hmm. And how can you talk about atrocities without talking about sociopathology? And how can you talk about social change without talking about power? You can't. And so all the solutions at those are basically either forms of denial or technical fixes, which are forms of denial. Yeah. Um, and so I think, in, in fact, and, and this is not meant to be a plug for an event that's coming up, but it, it works out this way, that the, uh, uh, the Wallace Global Fund had wanted to set up another sort of event, and we're having it in San Francisco this year on November 13th. We had one last year, we're having one again this year, where it would be sort of a real Pioneers. It would be a conference where we actually talk about the real state of things and about what's really necessary. And um, and like I said, we had one last year. We're having one this year. And I think that that the point is not that event itself, but the point is I think that we need to start having that everywhere, where we start telling the truth about what we face and. Um, I mean, who was it who said that when you live in a culture of lies, as Orwell said that when you live in a culture of lies, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. But then yes. also, somebody else said that when you live in a culture of lies, telling the truth is an act of great kindness. And I'm not talking about the sort of truth that I've known some people who are dedicated to always telling the truth, which means, you know, give them, give them an opportunity to just insult you. I'm not talking about that level of truth. I don't care about that. That's just crazy. Um, but instead, telling the truth about these very important circumstances, when 200 species went extinct today, yes. and we need to talk about that. Yes. And the oceans, I mean, the latest, the latest is that uh, coral reef communities could be, could be gone within 40 years and could be murdered within 40 years, and we need to talk about that. If we can't talk about it, we can't figure out what actions are necessary to stop it. And also, 
It's like, what do all the so-called solutions to global warming have in common? The ones presented by all the mainstream people, Al Gore, Bill McKibben, et cetera, et cetera. What they all have in common is they all take industrial capitalism as a given and the natural world as that which must conform to industrial capitalism. And first off, it's crucial they say that which, so that the natural world is, a, is an it as opposed to a who. Mm. And, but let's leave that aside for a second. And that is literally insane in terms of, of wanting to, well, first off, without a natural world, you don't have anything. The natural world has to be the independent variable. It's like, if you want to stop global warming, then you have to stop global warming, whether that takes stopping industrial capitalism or not. You don't force the natural world to, uh, to adapt to civilization. Instead, you force this culture to adapt to the natural world. Because the natural world is what's real. Without the natural world, you don't have anything. And that's the first part. And the second is that it is impossible. You cannot... This is like saying, how do we protect women and save Ted Bundy, you know? Yes. And the dominant culture. And why would you want to do that? What we want to do, this culture destroys every indigenous culture it encounters. It, it destroys land everywhere. It's based on, on violation and conquest. And... It doesn't take a genius to figure this out. I mean, one of the first written myths of this culture is Gilgamesh deforced the plains and hills of Iraq. Prior to the beginnings of this culture, Iraq was a cedar forest so thick that sunlight never touched the ground. This culture, deserts, I mean, forests precede this culture and deserts dog its heels. And, and, and yet they're trying to protect the perpetrator. They're trying to protect yeah. the culture. And so one of the first things we have to do, if you... If you're trying to stop... Okay, here's the question. Yes. How do you stop global warming without stopping this extractive culture? And the answer is you don't. You can't. It's a physically impossible situation. It's like jumping off a cliff and saying, how do I not fall to my death? And, I mean, because you can talk about solar all you want, solar and wind and all that, but there are, there are toxic seas in China from the mining of the rare earths. If you, if you want to have solar energy... You need, you still need a mining infrastructure, and people get really stupid about this um, because it's because this entire culture teaches you to be in denial. Um, you can't have an extractive culture on the planet too. And I'm not saying that humans do this inherently. I'm living, I'm standing right now on Talawa land, Talawa Indian land, and the Talawa lived here for at least 12,500 years. If you believe in the myths of science, if you believe the myths of the Talawa that lived here since the beginning of time, they did so perfectly sustainably. They lived here for 12,500 years, and the salmon were so thick when people got here. When, sorry, that's terrible. Listen to what I just said. The salmon were so thick when white people got here. Mm-hmm. The salmon were so thick when white people got here that, um, that they would keep you awake at night with the slapping of their tails against the water. <laughs> the place was a paradise, and the dominant culture has been here. I just read that Jed Smith came through in, I think, 1818 or 1820, so... Um, the dominant culture has been here for less than 200 years, and the place is trashed. Um, back to the original thing. I think what we need to do... See, it's, it just kills me. You know, so many, so many... I'm so sick of people saying, you know, oh, we need to make environmentalism fun and sexy and happy. You know, when was the last time you heard some oncologists say, we need to make the cancer treatments fun and sexy and happy? You know, a doctor just comes in and says, look, you had emphysema. You've been smoking for, you know, 40 years. You got emphysema. We got some things to do here. And we need to start telling the truth about that. And fortunately, there are, 
there are more people who are doing this, but we need a lot more. We don't. I don't, I don't care about telling truth. I mean, who was it? Noam Chomsky, I think, said that it was. Um, you know, the point is not to speak truth to power because they don't care anyway. <laughs> the point is to speak truth about power. Wow. That's what we have to do, and we have to stop. We have to stop waiting for the perpetrators to magically change their behavior. The capitalists aren't going to change their behavior. They're getting rewarded for it very well. So it's interesting because uh, as I was uh, preparing to meet with you today, I wrote down to work with corporations. It is like thinking a serial killer is going to change his ways. That's uh, that's not going to happen. Um, Derek, um, at the end of uh, the book Endgame, which uh, subtitle is Resistance, you write this letter in a few years. And uh, in this letter, you say things were tense here for a while, but people are finally beginning to understand that their lives depend on the land base. And you write this letter as if we came through this uh, cancer that is eating us at this time. So I'd like to appeal to your imagination and ask you, how do you imagine that we can, can come through this? this okay, do you want a, yeah. a reasonably best-case scenario, or do you think what I, what I think is going to happen? Oh, can we have both? We still have a little, little bit of time. Sure. Well, what I, honestly, what I think is going to happen is, and my, my big fear is that not enough people are going to do anything, and this culture is going to continue to grind away at the planet until there is essentially nothing left. The, the, the sort of business-as-usual outlook is, is horrible, horrible, horrible. The, okay, so now that's, the, that's the, the, the bad one. The good one is, can you ask the question again? Yes. Um, how do you imagine that we can come through this metastasized cancer inflicted on the planet. Well, I, I think that, I mean, here, here is, I know that there is an organization in, in the Niger Delta called MEND, the Movement for the Emancipation of Niger Delta. It's an indigenous movement, and it formed, the, the oil companies have been destroying their homeland for decades, and they're knee-deep in sludge, and they attempted to fight this nonviolently, and um, we've all heard of Ken Sarawiwa and the other eight who were murdered slash executed at the behest of Shell. And um, men has, since that time, um, is, is no longer a strictly nonviolent resistance movement and has at times reduced the oil output of the Niger Delta by up to 80%, and they've routinely reduced the oil output by 30 to 40%. And they've done this through sabotage and kidnapping. And I'm not meaning to suggest that those are the only effective tactics. What I'm meaning to suggest is that we need to shut down. We need to put our bodies in between the oil economy and life on the planet. And we need to shut it down. And that can be done nonviolently, as in France during the strikes last, what was it, December, where they fought strategically. And instead of doing a random 
protest, they they did strikes at oil terminals, and they were able, through sheer mass of numbers, to shut down the oil terminals. And if you do that, the economy stops. And the economy, what is GNP? GNP is really a measure of how quickly this culture is converting the living to the dead, because that's what production is in this culture. It's converting living trees into two by fours. And so if what we need to do mm-hmm. is to um, stop the economy, which can be done through, through many, many means. And one of the things we need to do is like so many indigenous people have said to me that the first and most important thing we have to do is to decolonize our hearts and minds. Right. And one of the things that means to me is to not identify with the system and so not suggest, like so many people do, that the way to stop global warming is by... Um, I mean, I'm sorry, the solutions of global warming all take industrial capitalism as a given. If they were space aliens who had come down and they had instituted this system, we wouldn't be saying that we need to, in order to stop the heating of the planet, we need to protect the system that's been imposed by the aliens. I mean, another way to put this is if salmon could take on human manifestation, how much longer do you think dams would stand? (laughs) If Delta smelt could take on human manifestation, how long do you think that the pumps on the Sacramento River that are killing them would stand? And what we need to do is we need to recognize that war has long since been declared against the world by this culture, by the dominant culture, long since, thousands of years ago. And how do you stop someone who is waging war? What you do is you destroy their capacity to wage war. That's how, that's how the Nazis were stopped in World War II, is between the Soviet, the Soviet Army and the German, I'm, I'm sorry, the, and the Allied Air Force, they were able to, to destroy the German capacity to wage war. And so whatever success we have will come through systematically, decisively destroying the ability of the perpetrators to wage war against against the real world. And, you know, sometimes I get pegged as the violence guy, and that's not really accurate because I'm really the everything guy. I want to put everything on the table, everything on the table, and talk about whether it's appropriate and whether it's, whether it's effective. I mean, that's the question. And I have no problem. I've got a good friend who is a lawyer who is a... Um, she's argued before the California State Supreme Court on whether uh, 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 to protect... To protect um, uh, forests, and she's protected so many acres of forest, done this entirely through legal legal means. At the same time, she recognizes that the system is entirely rigged toward the destruction. But that doesn't alter the fact that she is protecting land, and that's really what I care about. There's a friend of mine, a longtime activist, who says that the reason he does his work is because as, thing, as things become increasingly chaotic, he says, he wants to make sure that some doors remain open. And what he means by that is that if the bull trout are here in 10 years, they may be here in 50, but if they're gone in 10, they're gone forever. And so he's protecting land, trying to make sure that when this system collapses, it's in the process of collapse, and we can speed that up. And anyway, as this, as this culture collapses, he wants to make sure the grizzly bears are still around, because who knows what will happen later. And one more thing about this, you know, there can be like men uses, uses violent means. It can be entirely nonviolent. One of the jokes I've told for a long time is that um, Bernie Madoff 
actually did more for the environment than almost anybody else by helping to collapse the economy. <laughs> and he did it through entirely nonviolent means, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I totally get it. So the important thing is to, is to, oh, and simultaneously, okay, the best case scenario is as we are dismantling the larger infrastructure, at the same time, the permaculture wing comes on board. And I know that they're not going to, you know, a lot of them are going to kind of freak out at the notion of actually dismantling. So we'll just leave that aside. And instead, they can and should be supporting those who are dismantling the whole thing and helping to provide food security locally, you know, replacing the unsustainable, immoral food system that's currently in place with local food production. And those, those systems can, can come up. This is what happened with the American so-called patriots back in, like, um, you know, pre-American Revolution days, is that at the same time that they were preparing for a revolution, they were putting in place alternative court systems that would... And the Irish did the same thing. At the same time that they are systematically trying to kick out the British, they were instituting their own systems of justice, their own sh- systems of, of, of food supply, all of this, and these are all these, these alternative institutions, need to spring up at the same time as there's this oppositional force that is going after the center of the machine. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, fortunately, th- this is happening. Um, I have a silly question in closing. I think a lot of uh, what's going on here in this civilization is based on an addiction to comfort. So um, can, uh, can we be comfortable living off of the generosity of the land? Well, I think that that was a lot easier back when, it's not a silly question at all, I think that was a lot easier back when um, there were still runs of salmon and there were a lot fewer human beings. One of the problems is that because of, especially because of agriculture and then oil, uh, humans have exceeded carrying capacity, and especially industrial humans have exceeded carrying capacity. I need, need to say this very clearly, that, that humans have exceeded carrying capacity. Yes, there are way more humans on the planet than the planet can su- support. But I, when people say that, oftentimes it's used in a really racist fashion to suggest that it's people in non-industrialized nations who are the problem, but that's really not true at all. And a great example of that is I've got a friend who used to be married to somebody from Bangladesh, and even 15 years ago, his mother might say to him, um, could you get some fish for dinner from the river? And he would go catch fish, and they would have dinner. And mm-hmm. everyone in the village could do this. Yeah. And now they can no longer do this because the river's so polluted from factories that the, the river's dead. And they can no longer, if they, have to, if they want to get fish, they've got to get them from Iceland. And the, the problem there was not that they had too many children. The problem was that there were factories came in to produce cheap goods for people in the United States who destroyed their river. Mm-hmm. And so the real problem, yes, there's more humans on the planet can support, but the real problem is this extractive consumer system that is set up in the set up globally, but really the global elites are at the at the source of it. They're they're a much bigger problem. So, the, a bigger problem than over over population is overconsumption. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to your question, at, at some point, yes, people up until 200 years ago were living quite comfortably here, where I live now, and 
I mean, they were working less. I mean, the, the salmon were so thick that they would just put a box out and um, fish would swim into it. I mean, it's, it's, it was, the, the world was ridiculously fecund. And life was, in many ways, very, very easy for them. Um, did they have television? No. Did they have electric blankets? No. Um, but they had homes, and their homes were, were, actually, I was thinking about this, that we often think that, oh, our homes are so big, and I don't think that's accurate at all. I think their homes were actually bigger, much bigger than ours. The difference is um, that their bedroom would be inside, and their living room is all of outside, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, but, you know, they, could, they, had, they would have a small bedroom, and then they, they could stay quite warm through the winter because they, you know, they're only heating one small space. So, yeah, they, they live, many people in many parts of the world live comfortably. I've, I, the reason, only, only reason I'm putting the qualifiers, I've read about the people who live down in Tierra del Fuego. It seems like they're really cold. <laughs> but then again, you know, they were used to living there. That's how they lived, and that's where they lived. They lived there sustainably, too. It depends on what you want by comfort. If what you want by comfort is a car so you can drag around 2,000 pounds of metal when you want to go somewhere, no, that's not sustainable. And we're going to see the end of that in our lifetimes. Well, Derek, we, uh, we're going to close this conversation. What would you like to say in closing? Well, I would like to say that your questions are great, and I would love to do this again if you've got time. Oh, I'd love to, because I'd like to talk about your new book, Dreams. Well, let's, let's, let's do that. Fantastic. I would love it. So uh, I know you have to go, and uh, we shall communicate about another interview. That sounds fun. I would love that. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, have a great day. You too. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.